welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So in the last service, they gave me 27 minutes to preach. This service, it's 25 minutes, so you're lucky. I took out a couple paragraphs. Um, Three Fridays ago, I experienced probably the lowest point in my career as a pastor. And for an entire year, what we had been doing in our student ministries is we've been building up momentum towards our houseboats trip. And God had been blessing us with a whole bunch of momentum. And so there we were. We were finally on Lake Shasta, and we had 100 high school students and a whole bunch of leaders. And up to this point, everything has been miraculously perfect. Like, no bus breakdowns, no serious illnesses, none of those, like, debilitating sunburns that these, these Carmel kids often get, MPG kids often get. Um, no girlfriend-boyfriend breakups, which is a miracle with 100 high school students. It was ju- was there one? That I- oh, no, forget it. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, just drama-free. It was better than we could have asked or imagined. And up to Friday night, we had been faithfully sharing the gospel which is something that we always do when we're on a retreat. We'd been ministering to the students, and we'd been doing everything the way we felt like God had called us to do it. And so when the final night rolled around, I was just super expectant. I stood in front of all the students and said something to this effect. I said, this is what's called the say-so. If you have made a first-time commitment to follow Jesus this week, then all you have to do is stand up and say so, and we want to celebrate what God is doing in your lives. And so I prayed, and then when I finished praying, I said, when you're ready, stand up. And so we don't have any fog machines or any, like, music, something like that. It's just it's everyone just sitting there in silence. Um, And so the first 20 seconds roll by. It's normal that no one stands up. It's really awkward, and it's like no one wants to be the first person to stand up. 40 seconds roll by, and then people start looking around at each other. I catch a couple of my leaders being like. <laughs> and then it gets, to, it gets to no lie like 90 seconds, and no one's stood up at this point, and now it's just straight up uncomfortable. There's kids like nodding. Yeah, I was there. Um, <laughs> and I, in my heart, but, but began to panic. Um, and I just, I knew, it was like, God, you know, let's just keep going. Let's just keep making it as awkward as possible. We're going to keep going. Surely someone will stand up. So at least two minutes had to roll by. Not a single person stood up. And I was absolutely crushed. The rest of my message that night was pretty dependent on the fact that someone would stand up and proclaim Jesus for the first time. And then in my heart, I'm kind of a, and my brain, I'm kind of a crazy person. I started to think like these grandiose, crazy thoughts like, oh my goodness, what will the church think about me? Am I going to get fired? Am I even called into ministry? I don't have any fruit. That... <laughs> so I put this brave face on and I finished the message and then um, we dismissed into a small group time. And so I'm coming down off the roof of the, the houseboat down to the deck and, and I'm in shock. I'm genuinely sick to my stomach, almost stumbling. And the, one of the first things I see as I get off the ladder is Maddie Cook, one of our great interns, like just beaming face. And I'm like, what are you smiling about? That's what I, that's what I thought. And she, she was just so excited. And she said, Aubrey wants to accept Jesus right now. And so 
I hurried over to Aubrey with Maddie, and we prayed together as Aubrey submitted her life to Christ. And that week, we had been singing this song all about how Jesus leaves the 99 to pursue the one. In his providence, our story mirrored that parable that Jesus told about the, the lost sheep. We had 100 students, and Jesus was after that one. And so I asked Aubrey if I could share her wonderful news with all the boats so that we could party together. And we were standing on the bottom of one of the middle boats, and it creates kind of this amphitheater-type atmosphere. And so I turned on my little speaker, and I announced that Aubrey had accepted Jesus. And Aubrey, do you remember just the noise that erupted, right, of, as all of these people celebrated this wonderful news? And it, I went from one of the worst moments to one of my happiest moments in a matter of moments, and that's the power of Christ. And he shattered all of my preconceived notions of how he works. And he humbled me and said, no, I'm in charge here. I'll do what I want. And he wasn't done. A couple minutes later, we hear a yell from one of the outside boats up top. Bella just accepted Jesus. More partying. Then Taya, then Nina, and then dozens of us gathered on the back of one boat as we laid hands on a guy named Zach. And he, we prayed for him as he accepted Jesus. And then finally, Jesus used Bibiana to talk to Caitlin, as you heard last week. And Caitlin accepted Jesus shortly after. Lots and lots of celebrating. Earlier that day, all of us had been given the opportunity to take two hours of solitude on this beautiful park overlooking the lake. A lot of us chose to read the entire Gospel of Mark during that time because we had been studying it um, during that week. But chapter 5 hit me like a ton of bricks when I was reading it. And so I want to share with you this lesson that I learned from the lake. Open up a Bible or an app to Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 840. And before I pray, I, I want to draw your attention to the, the middle of your bulletins. You'll see that there's something new there. There's some fill-in-the-blank, some open-ended questions. There's a doodle-slash-coloring section for children and bored husbands. Um, I even have crayons if anyone would like some. Chris Catini, crayons? Yeah, all right. There you go. I knew it. There, Kyle. Oh, oh. So, honestly, I think studies have shown, teachers, can you back me up, that doodling helps um, with concentration. Is that true, or is that one of the things that people make up to uh, help those who'd like to doodle? Um, so with any sermon, really, we live in this, this culture that it's really hard to pay attention, right? We've always got something. So what I ask during a sermon, and this is even me when I'm listening to a sermon, is what's that one thing God wants to teach me? What is the take-home point that God has for me through his Bible and for the through the spoken word. And so I would encourage you to do that this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you that you are our teacher, that we find truth and life in you. So we ask now that your spirit would come and that you would teach us um, more about how much you love us and what we do when we receive that love. It's in your name. Amen. So beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So this story begins with this terrifying scene. Jesus has just gotten to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake, just so you know. And he is greeted immediately by a demon-possessed man. This man has been so overtaken by a demon that he lives amongst the tombs and no one is able to subdue him. And to be honest with you, this is, this is literally what nightmares are made of, right? Like this is what nightmares are, right? So this is happening. So let me read this back to you again and I want you to visualize what's going on. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What do you see? What do you see when you read that? You see a monster? You see like a, a guy crippled over with those uh, pitch black piercing eyes? Maybe you see something from, you know, like one of those Stephen King novels or movies? Whatever you see, I can pretty much guarantee it's not pretty. But if we pay extra close attention to this text, there's almost this slight subtle shift that happens in verse 5. The man rather than the demon, comes to the forefront. The attention turns from the strength of the demons to the pitiful condition of the man. Underneath the scary, scary exterior was a lonely and frightened man. We read this story and our minds see the external circumstances. I mean, how can we not when something this crazy is happening? But verse 5 tells us about the agony that a person is experiencing. He is a tormented human created in the image of God. He's lost all of his family, his community, and probably his sanity. His existence is a tragic one. And he cries out all day and all night. And he inflicts physical pain on himself because his emotional pain is so great. That is until Jesus shows up. Despite domination by the unclean spirit, the man sees hope in Jesus. And not only is the man drawn to Jesus as he emerges from the boat, but so too actually are the demons. Together, they fall at the feet of Christ. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you do to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, 
rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The demons plead. They do not negotiate. There is no war or battle between Jesus and the demons. From beginning to end, the scene envisions the surrender and judgment of a vanquished enemy. We do not know exactly why these kind of like persistent demons ask for what they ask for, and we definitely don't understand why Jesus grants them their wish, but the ultimate result remains the same. The demons, known as legion, have met their demise. Now, for those of you who have inquiring minds and you're like, what is what's going on with these pigs, right? So we know that pigs were unclean in the Jewish faith, and so some scholars believe that this is not only about a man being freed, but also an unclean land being freed from its unclean animals. So if you look at it that way, Jesus pulled off a two-for-one. So. <laughs> so obviously, this whole exorcism and pig mass killing has caused quite uh, the pandemonium. And so let's pick up in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So this chaos, this chaotic scene breeds more chaos as the word spreads. The city comes to see the man who scares them. And it's not the demon-possessed man. It's Jesus who scares them. They are afraid of Jesus and they ask him to leave. But in the midst of this frantic scene, there's a guy. There's a guy who's been saved, a man who has been liberated. Jesus has shown up and rescued his life. Jesus had seen this lonely and frightened man, and Jesus used his power to restore that one man. And so it is no wonder that this guy wants to get back on the boat with Jesus. He wants to leave the people who have abandoned him to the tombs and go with his Savior. But God has other plans. Verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Amanda and I wanted to do this quick two-week Sunday series with you because we believe that lessons from the lake aren't meant to stay at the lake. Just like Christ set this demon-possessed man free, he also has saved a bunch of desperate teenagers this summer who needed to know that they are loved and worthy of being saved. And we would be doing you all a disservice if we did not come back and share with you what God is doing and what he has done at Hume Lake and at Shasta Lake with our middle school and high school students. And plus, Many of you have been, named, have been praying for these students by name, and so we just want you to be encouraged and know that your prayers matter. A few weeks ago on Houseboats, God opened my eyes to verse 19 in a new way. It was the big lesson that I personally learned on the lake. 
Jesus commanded the man to go home to his friends and tell them how much he had done for him. Go home and tell them. That has been our rallying cry for the students since houseboats. Every retreat seemingly comes with this spiritual high that's followed by a disappointingly mundane return home. The flame that, the flame that once burned bright seems to dissipate by the day. And I'm willing to bet that many of us in this room have felt that exact thing happen in our lives. So then how do we go about fanning the fire of our faith? Well, maybe we should listen to what Jesus commands this man and actually share what God has done for us. We call this the big scary E word, evangelism. Sometimes we like to complicate and over-spiritualize evangelism. Other times we like to to call it something else, perhaps missional, or at our church we call it something like organic outreach, is a methodology that we use to evangelize. We come up with tactics and materials for something that is really at its core so plain and simple. Evangelism is storytelling. Jesus and the early church knew the power of a personal story. Jesus knew that all the healed man had to do was go and tell his friends, family, and community what Christ had done for him. And the Bible tells us that it looks like this guy did exactly that in verse 20. He went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This morning's text takes place in this Gentile land. It's completely saturated with Greco-Roman culture. And so what happens, what we're witnessing, is this man becomes one of, if not the first ever missionary to this land. And we find out in Mark 7 and 8 that he might have been doing a good job because when Jesus comes back to that same area, 4,000 people want to hear what Jesus has to say. And perhaps this is all because a person went home to their friends and told them what God had done. What about you? What has God done for you? I think last Sunday was so moving for so many of us because we had excited individuals come up here and tell us what they see Jesus doing. Testimonies reinvigorate our faith. They encourage us. They convict us. And they help us to remember what Jesus has done in our own lives. So I want you right here and right now to take a moment and consider what God has done for you this week month, year, or decade. Just take a moment and think about that. Have you told anybody that? Have you told anyone? Your story matters. I'm going to say it again. Every single one of your story matters. Your life has great purpose and worth regardless of what you think. I have watched over and over again these past few weeks as Jesus has spoken through our students. They don't have all the answers. They think they do, but they don't. They can't quote a bunch of Bible verses, right? What's John 3.15? Go. See, they don't know. (laughs) They're raw, but they're real and they're honest. Sorry for putting you on the spot. The first Wednesday back from houseboats, We gathered for youth group. I didn't prepare a lesson partly because I was tired and partly because I wanted the students to come and tell their peers 
what God had done for them. And they did not disappoint. Several teenagers took the opportunity and they ran with it. Their stories were funny, endearing, and most of all, they were just authentic. And after a sweet time of bearing witness to the love of Christ, we ended with a couple of worship songs, which we always do. But this, this Wednesday was different. We experienced a breakthrough. The Spirit of the Lord descended on this sanctuary, and every hand was raised in worship. It was the least Presbyterian thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Voices were singing out like they had never done before. A young man who had been on houseboats and who was not quite ready to surrender his life to Christ felt compelled in those moments to go outside on the patio with Ben Bransford and receive Jesus for the first time. And all of that did not happen on the lake at some retreat. That happened at Carmel Presbyterian Church in Carmel-by-the-Sea. Our return home has been anything but mundane. I would venture to say that many experienced God in this sanctuary in a way that far exceeded their retreat high. How exciting is that? That God is here with us and wants to do something amazing right here and right now. And while he could do it on his own, he does not need us. He invites us in his work. And there's nothing more fulfilling in this life than being used by God to show another person how much Christ loves them. Just ask Ben Bransford. No, seriously, ask him and tell him happy birthday. It's his birthday, so. No, don't start that precedent. That could be a dangerous precedent to start at church, but happy birthday. Um, when, when is the last time you saw someone with a smile on their face so big and genuine that it was just stuck there? like they couldn't get rid of it if they even tried. We've seen dozens of those smiles in the past few weeks, and I am hoping CPC becomes filled with them. I have a recommendation for how we might make that dream a reality. In seminary, I had a professor that I loved working with. His name is Dr. Scott Cormode, just a really practical guy, and um, his leadership classes taught me a lot about how to live my life and to um, succeed in ministry. One thing he would say over and over again was this, take your story and their story and weave them together with the biblical story in order to create a shared story of future hope. That seems like a lot, but in practice, it's actually quite simple. Let me share with you a recent example of this happening naturally. Someone I know has been struggling with crippling anxiety for almost a year now. It has been really tough going for him, and he is just beginning to get out of the worst of it. It's been a very big part of his story recently. And then recently, I also met another person who is starting to experience a significant bout of depression and anxiety. And I watched with a thankful heart as the first person came alongside the second person. They shared their experiences, the first man gave the other man some advice regarding the things that had helped him, and he also prayed with him and for him. Both of these people now have a shared story of future hope as they realize they are not alone and that God still uses them. 
Many of you are great friends and neighbors to a whole bunch of people. I see it all the time. Lali and I are new, newer to the community. We've been here for two years. But this Carmel in the Peninsula has a small town feel to it. And I witnessed this at Annabelle's celebration of life a couple weeks ago, the young lady that passed away in the car accident. Hundreds from our community went out to the valley and showed support to her family and to one another. It was just this beautiful moment of how community can be there for one another. But what God is asking us to do is to go one step further. We need to be bold and tactful in our proclamation of biblical truth. Weaving in the biblical story is the way in which we actually create a shared and sustainable future hope. The real true hope is in Christ alone. And if you're feeling under-resourced in your ability to weave in that biblical component, then I would encourage you to simply invite people to come and see what's going on at CPC with you. As a church family, we are actively creating a shared story of future hope around Christ, the King, the Lord, and the Savior. Go and tell. Come and see. God is up to something big here. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.